Well, take your Bible and turn to the Gospel of John. We're in a series through John 17 all the way to the end of chapter 21 as we press toward Easter Sunday. The series is entitled The Gospel, Finding True Life in Jesus. And today, we're at that marvelous chapter, chapter 17, that I've personally entitled The Lord's Prayer. Jesus knew that this day was coming. Within a matter of hours, he would be arrested and arraigned. He would be taunted and tormented. He would be convicted and crucified. The powers of darkness were closing in to humiliate the Son of God and to destroy his legacy. Within minutes, the Lord Jesus gathered his disciples to prepare them for that, that moment when, when he would leave them, when he would go back to heaven, when they would be forced to enter into a spiritual relationship with him in place of that face-to-face -face relationship that they had enjoyed for the previous three years. At this moment in their lives, they were in a spiritual fog. They could not grasp the enormous victory that was right there at the fingertips of Jesus, the victory that he would win through his death on the cross, his burial, his resurrection, and his ascension back to the right hand of the Father. His final few moments with his closest followers were spent uh, going over these marvelous principles that we find in John chapter 14 through 16. And then finally with them listening to him pray this incredible prayer. I think it's the greatest prayer that's ever been prayed. We've gone over this chapter. We're in the last stage of this chapter now. We saw that Jesus prayed for himself in verses 1 through 5. And then he prayed for those immediate disciples in verses 6 through 19. And today we move into the last portion of this chapter where Jesus prayed for those who would believe because of the disciples' ministry. Now, I don't want you to miss this important point. From verses 20 to 26, Jesus prayed for everyone who would be saved in future generations, and that includes us. I want you to know that what we're studying today, this portion of the prayer, Jesus prayed this for you. He prayed it for you. Look in verse 20. Jesus said, I do not ask on behalf of these alone. In other words, he said, Father, I'm not just praying for Peter, James, and John and the rest of these disciples. I'm not asking for them alone, but for those who believe in me through their word. Now, Jesus identified these future disciples as those who would believe in me. You see, that's the way you're saved. You're saved not by your works. You're not, you're not saved because of some heritage that your family has built over the years. You're saved when you put your faith and your trust in Jesus as your personal 
Savior and Lord. In John 1, 12, the Bible says, but as many as received him, that's Jesus, to them he gave the right to become sons of God, children of God, even to those who believe in his name. In John 6, 47, Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. So how do you become a Christian? You believe in Jesus. You trust him as your personal Savior and Lord. How, how would future disciples believe in Jesus if he were no longer there? That's the question. Well, they would believe through the gospel. These disciples would preach and teach, and, and the church would share for the next 2,000 years. They would believe through the New Testament that these apostles would write. I mean, you could pick up your Bible today and you can read the Gospel of John. And I tell you, friend, you can be saved by reading the Gospel of John because the Bible says in John chapter 20, verse 30 to 31, therefore many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may notice so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. Carville First Baptist Church has received this gospel. It's almost like a relay race. If you've ever been to a track meet, there there are these wonderful races where. There's a baton and, and one runner takes off and he takes the baton and he hands it to the next guy and he runs his portion of the race and he passes it to the next guy and he runs his portion of the race and he passes it to the next guy and he runs the finishing leg of that race. And here we are in 2022 and we have received the baton of the gospel as a local New Testament church. And we are sharing the gospel with our neighbors and the nations. And we're doing so despite the world's hatred and despite Satan's opposition. Here's the truth I want you to understand today. It's a very important truth. It's a liberating truth. It's a fantastic truth. And here it is. True life flows out of the gospel. If you really want true life, you're not going to find it in a bar. You're not going to find it gambling. You're not going to find it by, by increasing your riches. You're not going to find it through popularity or through relationships with human beings. You're going to find true life out of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It flows out of the gospel. So we ask ourselves this question. What kind of life is this? And what makes it so special? Well, number one, in this prayer, we notice that this kind of life builds Christian unity, number one. Notice verse 21 of chapter 17. That they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Do you know that Jesus prayed that there would be unity in his church? Now, Jesus said that he would build his church 
and the gates of Hades would not prevail against it. Now, Jesus wants the church, and that includes this church and every Bible-believing, gospel-honoring church, he wants churches to display supernatural unity. Now, this unity that we're talking about here cannot be developed by going through a course. It cannot be developed by our own human merit. This kind of unity that Jesus is praying to the Father about is a supernatural unity, and it is comparable to the unity that has existed between God the Father and God the Son for all of eternity. Obviously, this kind of unity is only possible because we have placed our faith in Jesus. Listen, if you're a born-again believer in this room, you have been born again. Your, your name has been written down in glory as we just sang about. You're a new creation in the Lord Jesus Christ. You're something today that you never were before you put your faith and trust in Jesus. You're a new person in Christ. You have new possibilities. You have new dreams. You have new hopes. That's who you are in Christ Jesus. Furthermore, you've become a participant in the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And you have received, let's, don't miss it, you have received true spiritual life through the gospel and through Christ. So we're talking here about a spiritual unity, not an organizational unity, not a unity of conformity, but we're talking about a spiritual unity that is supernatural in its characteristic, but it also has another characteristic I want you to see. This unity Jesus prayed for also can be described as doctrinal unity, not only supernatural unity, but doctrinal unity. And doctrinal unity is absolutely necessary in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, here's the essence of our spiritual and doctrinal unity. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 to 6. Paul wrote, there is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. The true church of Jesus Christ, now listen, the true church of Jesus Christ cannot unite with those who deny the essential truths of the gospel. There can be no unity with a church or, or a group that calls itself a church if they deny the essentials of the gospel. Nor can we unite with a church that affirms a false gospel. Those kind of churches we cannot unite with. We cannot have unity with those kinds of of believers in those kinds of churches. The unity of the church must be supernatural, it must be doctrinal, and it must be tangible, a tangible unity. The unbelieving world cannot see God. The unbelieving world does not read the Bible. The unbelieving world has no desire for the things of God. But they can see when believers in a church really care about one another. They can see 
when a, a group of people in a church love the Lord, they can see when a church, a group of believers in a church, are focused on a God-sized vision. When the world sees that, Jesus indicated in his prayer that they would believe that God the Father had sent God the Son to redeem the world. That's a powerful, powerful thought. Look in verse 22. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. Now, don't miss that. Jesus said, look, the glory that you've given me, Father, I've given to these believers at Carville First Baptist Church, not just Peter, James, and John. I've given to believers in the 21st century the same glory that you have given to me. You, you see, the glory of God is who or what he essentially is. It is his weightiness. The Hebrew word for glory speaks of a, a weightiness that God has. It, it speaks of the attributes of God, his love, his grace, his mercy, his power, his, his, his uh, sovereignty. It's the weightiness of God. But the glory of a Christian is what God meant them to be in the beginning. That's the glory of a Christian. You see, Jesus promised his disciples that he would give the Holy Spirit to them. In fact, he told them that when, when, when I'm resurrected from the dead, this thing just cut out on me. And when I'm resurrected from the dead, he said, I do not want you to leave Jerusalem until you receive what the Father has promised, and that is the gift of the Holy Spirit. Do you realize that the moment that you repented of your sin and you placed your faith in Jesus, you received the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, in a way, in a mystical and spiritual way that we cannot see with our own naked eyes, he baptized you into the body of Christ. And you're a part of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ because of what the Holy Spirit has done in you. You see, it is the Holy Spirit who makes possible this supernatural, doctrinal, and tangible unity that Jesus prayed about right here in our text. Our job is not to produce unity. We can't produce unity. Are you kidding me? We're like two old polecats who had their, their tails tied together and, and they were thrown over a clothesline. I, I tell you, when you see that, you, you, may, you may have union, but you don't have unity. I promise you that. Only the Holy Spirit of God can produce real, genuine, authentic unity in a local New Testament church. Our job is not to produce it. Our job is to maintain what the Holy Spirit has already put into place in our lives. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, Paul wrote, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now notice verse 3. Let me read that again. Being diligent 
to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of the peace, of peace. Now look, that is a great recipe for maintaining unity in a local New Testament church. I'll tell you where there is selfishness, where there is bickering and unforgiveness and bitterness, I'll tell you that church does a disservice to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ in the eyes of a waiting and watching world. I tell you, when, when a church is, has genuine, authentic unity, it makes the, the, the preaching and the sharing of the gospel so much easier and so much more effective than it would otherwise. So what kind of life flows out of the gospel? It is a life, number one, that builds Christian unity. Number two, it is a life that reflects God's love. Look at verse 23. Jesus said, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Do you see how several different times here Jesus is giving us the objective? He's saying, my goal for, for you as a church, it is to, to operate in such a way that the, the lost world will know that I have sent you, that the Father has sent the Son to redeem the human race. I want to remind you that the lost world cannot see God. They can't. But they can see Christians. And what they see in us is what they believe about God. See, if they see love in us, they know that God is love. If they see peace within us, they know that God is peace. If they see passion in us, they know that God is a God of passion. The church's unity validates the gospel and makes it appealing to the world at large. The church's unity also validates the Father's love for believers. Now, this is an absolutely stunning truth in the last part of verse 23. I want you to look at it again. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. Take that word even in your Bible and circle it. I don't want you to miss the the importance of what Jesus is communicating here in this prayer. He's saying this. He's saying that God loves those who believe in Jesus just like he loves Jesus. Whoa. Think about that. God the Father loves you as a believer just as much as he loves his son, Jesus. Let that sink in for just a moment. Because it is an amazing, amazing fact. Listen, there are no limits for God's love for us. No limits whatsoever. You realize that 
At any point in your, in your day, at any point in your life, you can go to the Heavenly Father, you can go to the throne of grace, and you can present your needs to Him in prayer, and He will hear your prayer, and He will meet the deepest needs of your life in a way that He desires in order to help you to be the very best you can be as a follower of Jesus. There are no limits to His love. And there is no end to God's love for us. Not only no limits, but no end. No wonder Paul could write in Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39, For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you see that? Paul said that nothing, nothing can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. There are no limits to God's love for us. There, there is no end to God's love for us. So how do we know? How can we know that God loves us like this. Well, we go to the cross. We go to the cross. The Bible says, but God demonstrated his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. If you want to understand the love of God, if you want to understand and know for sure that God loves you, don't go to a church and look at a stained glass window. Go to the cross and look at the cross of Jesus and see the Son of God hung between heaven and earth, bleeding profusely, crying out to God the Father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And finally ending his, his life on that cross by saying, it is finished, and he paid the penalty for our sin. That's how you know for sure that God loves you. And he loves you without limits, and he loves you without end. God's love is confirmed by the price he was willing to pay to save you. Because none of us are saved by our good works. None of us are saved because we come to church every once in a while. We are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Listen, folks, I want you to understand that true life flows out of the gospel. I'm talking about eternal life. I'm talking about abundant life here and now. So what kind of life is this? And what makes it so special? It is a life that builds Christian unity. It is a life that reflects God's love. And number three, it is a life that embraces genuine hope. When I studied verse 24, I almost had a fit. You ever been studying the Bible and you have one of those Holy Spirit fits? Now, it's not something bad, okay? It's not some kind of physical or emotional or mental instability on my part. It is just when the Spirit of God opens up the Scripture and shows you something like you've never seen before and you are absolutely amazed and enthralled by the Word of God. That's the kind of fit I had. Look at verse 24. Jesus is praying. He's praying for you. He's praying for you. Look what he prayed. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, 
You realize, we, we talked about this last week, how you as a believer are a gift from God the Father to God the Son. Oh, what an amazing gift it is. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given me for you have loved me before the foundation of the world. And I want to say again, this verse absolutely blows my mind. I can understand how believers could want to be with Jesus. I can understand that. But what I have a hard time deciphering is how Jesus could want somebody like Chuck Herring to be with him in heaven. Somebody that he had to save. Somebody that he had to cleanse all the filth out of his life. Somebody that he had to take out of a world of lostness out of the dominion of darkness and place him in the kingdom of light. And yet the Bible says that Jesus prayed, I desire that they be with me where I am. And you can put, if you're a believer, you can put your name there above that little pronoun, they. Does that not thrill your soul? That Jesus wants us to be with him in heaven. There's one song that's been written said, heaven would not be heaven without you. That's what Jesus is communicating here. This should change our perspective on death. As I studied this and as I meditated on this, How could we approach death with the fear of the world when we read something like this? I want you to hear me. When you die or Jesus comes again, whichever comes first, you will go to heaven because Jesus wants you to be with him. That will make your death a triumph, not a tragedy. In John 14, 1 through 3, Jesus said, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I, listen, for I go to prepare a place, what? For you. For I go to prepare a place for you. Jesus wants us to be with him where he is, and he is fully prepared for us to join him. Is that not wonderful? I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. What makes heaven heaven? It's not streets of gold people. It's not beautiful dwelling places that he's prepared for us. It's Jesus. Dwight Dwight L. Moody said this. He said, when I get to heaven, I want to spend the first thousand years talking to Jesus. And at the end of a thousand years, I'll say, hey, Jesus, where's Paul? His point being, going to heaven 
the very first person we should want to be with is Jesus. Why? Because he wants us to be with him. That is, that is so wonderful. Paul said in Philippians 1.21, For to me to live is Christ and to die is what? Gain. Yet so many people in, in American Christianity look at death as, as some kind of loss, as, as some kind of tragedy. It's not a tragedy when a believer goes to be with Jesus. That's not a tragedy. It, it breaks our hearts, yes. We miss our loved ones, but they're with Jesus for Pete's sake. Peter inspired persecuted believers when he included this touching thought in his first epistle. He said, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a, what? A living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away. Reserve where, church? In heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now I'm going to ask you a $64,000 question. Do you look forward to going to heaven to be with Jesus? I'm afraid that many believers in our Americanized churches and Christianity would view that glorious moment as an intrusion on their plans. Well, sure, Pastor, I want to go to heaven, but I, I've got some stuff I want to do first. I've got places I want to go and visit. I, I, I've, got, I, I've, got, I've got people I want to see. I, I've got things. I, I, I remember when I was a young person, I was dating Darlene. That back, back during that day, there was a real heavy, heavy emphasis upon the coming of Jesus, second coming of Jesus. And I remember thinking in my mind, man, I hope that Darlene and I can get married before Jesus comes. <laughs> That's what I'm talking about. That is a shameful thought on my part. But I tell you what, you go to persecuted parts of the world where believers are being persecuted for their faith. And I'm telling you, they are living on the edge of eternity and they're ready to step into eternity at any moment. I'll tell you, if Jesus calls for them to die or him to come again and get them, I'll tell you, friend, it would not be an intrusion on their plans. It would be a welcome relief to go to heaven. Shouldn't it be that way for us? I mean, if Jesus desires us to be with him, shouldn't we desire to be with him? I'm getting so fired up here, spits all over my notes. <laughs> Just be glad you're not on the front row. <laughs> so Jesus, in this prayer, expressed his desire that every believer would be with him. But he also expressed another desire here in verse 24, and that is that every believer would see his glory. 
What glory is he talking about? He's talking about the same glory that he mentioned in verse 5 where he prayed to the Father. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Before creation. He's talking about his Shekinah glory, the, his full-fledged glory. And that glory that Jesus had with the Father before creation gushed out, of the, gushed out of the Father's perfect love for his Son. Can you imagine? Use your sanctified imagination. Can you imagine the first moment when you step into glory and you see Jesus in the full display of his glory? Can you imagine? In Revelation chapter 22, verse 3 to 5, the Bible says that in the new heaven and the new earth there will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him. That's you. They will see his face. Oh, can you imagine, church, what it's going to be like to see the face of Jesus? And his name will be on their foreheads, and there will no longer be any night, and they will not have any need of the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them. The glory of God will illumine all of creation, and they will reign forever and ever. Who will reign? You will reign with Jesus forever and ever. In 1 John 3, 2, John wrote, Beloved now, we are children of God. And it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. We'll be like him in character. We will have a glorified body just like his. I, I tell you, the, the gospel means good news, right? And true life flows out of the gospel so what kind of life is it well it's a life that builds christian unity number one number two it reflects god's love number three it embraces genuine hope and number four it's a life that knows god intimately look at verse 25 and 26 the Bible says, O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you. And these have known that you sent me, and I have made your name known to them, and will make it known so that the, so that the love with which you love me may be in them and I in them. Notice five different times in those two verses he uses the word known. Knowing God. Is anything more important for a believer than knowing God intimately. Now listen, the only way that you and I can ever know God is through Jesus, his son. He came to explain God to us. And the only way that you and I can ever get to God, the only way we can ever know God and, and, and experience the glories of his life is through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. J.I. Packer wrote this. He said, if you want to judge 
how well a person understands Christianity. Find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctively Christian as opposed to merely Jewish is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is the Christian name for God. If we know God, we will know his nature. We'll know that his nature is characterized by love and therefore unconditional love should characterize the life of Christians. Was this prayer of Jesus answered? Absolutely. The request concerning Peter, James, and John and those other eight disciples was certainly answered. These men went on to become pillars of the New Testament church. Not one of them defected. Not one of them defected. Not one of them denied the faith. Not one of them deserted the Lord. Of course, Judas did, but Judas was not a believer. He was a false believer, a false prophet. And the request concerning all believers is still being answered today, is it not? Every day, people are being saved on this planet. They are building Christian unity. They are reflecting God's love. They are embracing genuine hope. They, they are knowing God intimately. Every true believer is a verifiable witness that God answered the prayer of John chapter 17, the high priestly prayer of Jesus. So today... I'm asking you to examine your life. If you say, hey, pastor, I'm a Christian. Now, that's fine. I'm glad that you can say you're a Christian. But I do want you to understand that not everybody that says they're a Christian is a Christian. You see, to be a Christian, you have to be willing to repent of your sin and place your faith in Jesus. You have to believe in Jesus and trust that what he did for you on the cross and through the resurrection is sufficient to save your soul and remove a mountain of sin that you've committed in your life. So I'm asking you today to examine yourself as a believer by these four major attributes of true life that flows out of the gospel. I ask you this question. Are you building Christian unity? Are you? Number two, are you reflecting God's love to a waiting and watching world? Number three, are you embracing genuine hope? A heavenly perspective? And number four, do you know God more today than you knew him yesterday? more this month than you knew him last month, deeper today than you did a year ago. Do you know God? Now here's the next question. Will you take the necessary steps to make some improvement in these four areas in your life as a believer? 
I would invite you in just a moment to come to the altar and to bow before the Lord Jesus Christ who prayed this prayer for you and ask him to help you to really take your Christian life to the next level in these four particular areas that he mentioned as he prayed for you. And then if you're here today and you say, Pastor, I don't know God. And Pastor, I don't understand a thing you said today. I understand that. But I'm telling you that God the Father loves you. And he sent his son so that you could know him and so that you could be saved. And he's willing to save you. Jesus said that he will by no means cast out anybody that comes to him. Even though you may not understand everything today, here's what I would encourage you to do. I would encourage you to come to one of our staff members. They'll be scattered across the front here. And ask them to introduce you to somebody that will share the gospel with them, share the gospel with you. You need to hear the gospel. And I'm asking you to come to one of our staff members and make it real in your heart today. Would you bow your heads with me, Father, in the name of Jesus. I pray that the Holy Spirit of God would work powerfully in these closing moments. I'm praying, Heavenly Father, that all heaven would break loose in this room. I'm praying this altar would be filled with believers who want to take these four things that we've discussed today, that true life that flows out of the gospel, and really make some improvements in their lives in these four areas. I'm praying, Father, you bring every person who does not know Jesus as Lord and Savior and save them today. We ask you to do it in your name and for your glory, in Jesus' name.